You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we're tackling a very exciting topic, um, something that I hear all the time uh, in in mom groups on social media, um, the topic of food sensitivity tests and whether or not they actually work. And this week, we are joined by a very special guest who we'll introduce in just one moment. Um, But before we do that, we just wanted to briefly recap last week's episode. So last week, we tackled the topic of diabetes. Um, We were joined by our amazing executive producer, Montana Mullins, who described her life with type 1 diabetes. Um, So we talked about what diabetes is. Uh, We talked about glucose and the glucose insulin signaling pathway. Well, I should say Andrea spoke about that. Um, (laughs) We talked about the disease burden, um, when type 1 diabetes is typically diagnosed. We then address some common myths. So people mistakenly think that all cases of diabetes are the same and that they're all caused by a bad diet and eating too much sugar um, and that diabetes is curable through special diets and supplementation. So we we debunked that and talked about that um, as well as the misconceptions that misconception that diabetics cannot ever have any sugar. Uh, We talked about different ways to treat and manage diabetes, but we emphasize that there is currently no known cure for type 1 diabetes. Then we talked a little bit about hypo and hyperglycemia. um, And then we also chatted about type 1 diabetes impact on fertility and pregnancy. We wrap things up with a discussion about how healthcare providers sometimes misdiagnose type 1 diabetes for other conditions and the uh, implications of that. Um, So with that, actually one last thing before I turn it over to you, Andrea, to introduce our special guest. I just wanted to let you all know that I'm currently going through a cross-country move. I am moving from Florida up to western Massachusetts, so I do apologize if my audio has been a little wonky lately. Um, I don't have my typical microphone, so I apologize for any audio quality issues, but they should soon be resolved. (laughs) So with that, Andrea, can I turn it over to you? Absolutely. So we're super honored to have with us Dr. Dave Stukas today, especially as I'm always yearning for other immunology experts to come on the show. So Dr. Stukas is a professor of clinical pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He's also the director of their Food Allergy Treatment Center. Um, He's heavily involved in medical education as well dissemination of best clinical practices, Um, and he's a very outspoken advocate involved on social media, um, often dispelling myths and misconceptions around all things allergy and immunology. So you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at AllergyKidsDoc. Thank you, Dr. Stukas, for joining us today to tackle this question we've all been asked, do food sensitivity tests really work? Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. The answer is no. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
and we're done. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's, let's kind of set the stage and then we'll dig into the data. So, um, Jess, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the demographics, the prevalence of food allergies? Sure. Sure thing. So, Okay, so we did a little digging, and it seems that the incidence of food allergies is about 2 to 3% of the population, and those are people who have been medically diagnosed. But up to 25% of, a, of adults actually self-diagnose as being allergic or intolerant. Um, and an increase in this coincides with this increased presence on the market of these food intolerance tests, which claim to enable you to test your sensitivity to hundreds of different foods. Um, so I know that's going to be the topic today. We're going to talk about whether or not that's legitimate. I just wanted to take a second to, to talk a little bit. You know, we're talking about food intolerance and food allergies, and I'd love you know for for you guys to help um, me and others who are listening different differentiate between those two things. Um, a, a true food allergy can can be a really scary thing, right? It can, um, when, when a person eats even a small amount of food um, that they're actually allergic to, they can have a minor reaction, which can involve itching, swelling, stomach upset. Um, but one in four people who have a true food allergy, even a mild one, will at some point experience a severe reaction known as anaphylaxis, which is a state of shock defined as a reaction involving two of the body's organs, uh, is characterized by symptoms like wheezing, dizziness, and vomiting. Um, the pulse can slow, blood pressure can drop, and the airways can actually close. Um, and we're hearing more, and I'm hearing about this a lot. I have two kids in school. I hear all the time about um, peanut allergies. You know, we're not allowed to pack certain uh, foods in their lunch boxes. And, and everyone is saying that it seems like food allergies are on the rise. So I did a little bit of digging, um, and it seems that really, if you look at the data, it does look like around the world, we are seeing more food allergy related hospitalizations. Um, So one large scale review of hospital admissions data found that anaphylaxis cases are on the rise in the US, Australia, Europe, and many other regions. Um, In the US, hospital visits for food allergy increased threefold from 1993 to 2006. And between 2013 and 2019, England saw a 72% rise in the number of hospital admissions for children caused by anaphylaxis. So we looked at at data from multiple peer-reviewed sources. Uh, It looks like the rate of food allergies worldwide has increased from around 3% of the population in 1960 to around 7% in 2018. And it's not just that the rate has increased, and I'd love for you guys to weigh in here. It seems that the range of foods to which people are allergic has also widened. So I was reading this um, this article in which Peter Ben Emberak, who works for the International Food Safety Authorities Network, um, which is a World Health Organization body that responds to food safety emergencies, he was interviewed and he was saying that initially, decades ago, it was only like classical allergies to seafood, milk, and nuts. And now that has really expanded dramatically to a range of products now. 
So, you know, I, I'm sure that's a whole other discussion. You know, why is it that we're seeing more food allergies, more hospitalizations? Is it just that we're more aware of them? Um, is it a result of our diagnostics? What is it? Um, so maybe I'll pause there. Andrea, did you want to chime in with any other context or get us started? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, obviously food allergies and, and maybe, you know, Dr. Stugas, you and I can kind of chat about that and food intolerance slash food sensitivity are two very different things. So, so maybe we want to start with that. So Dr. Stugas, can you talk to us really what a food allergy actually is in the context of, you know, that being an acute immune response? No, absolutely. And this, this is probably the most important point for the whole conversation today. And this is something that that I often lead with for almost every new family, new patient consultation that I see. I walk in the room because I often walk in the room knowing that they don't have food allergies based upon mm-hmm. the reason for referral, which we'll talk about in a second. So they're, they're very different. Food allergies are when somebody's immune system produces an allergy antibody called immunoglobulin E or IgE against a food. And uh, allergies are really easy to diagnose because it's reproducible. So if you want to know if you're allergic to something, it should be cause and effect. With mm-hmm. food allergy, every single time I eat a food, regardless of what form I eat it, it's typically going to happen within minutes, rarely longer than a couple of hours later. You're going to have classic symptoms that can be any combination of big red itchy hives, maybe swelling, other rashes. You can have coughing, uh, wheezing, vomiting even upper respiratory symptoms like sneezing and things like that. But it should only happen when you eat the food, and it really should happen every time you eat the food. Uh, Whereas a food intolerance does not involve the immune system, and this is more difficult to do with digestion. The Mm -hmm. classic example is lactose intolerance. Lactose is a simple sugar found in dairy products. For people with lactose intolerance, they lack the enzymes to digest this. So when they eat the sugar, it passes through their intestinal tract undigested, which causes a lot of problems, such as cramping and bloating and diarrhea and a lot of discomfort. It's a little bit more delayed, and it doesn't cross over. So if you have food intolerance, it's not going to cause anaphylaxis if you eat you know, a certain amount of that food or things like that. Whereas with food allergies, it absolutely can progress towards a more life-threatening reaction. And then lastly, we have this term food sensitivity, which really is, there's no consensus medical expert definition for this. Um, There is no diagnostic test for this, which we'll talk about. This really is sort of a marketing term that was brought up, and they cast a very wide net. And if you spend more than five minutes online, you will see that essentially any symptom that anybody has at any point in their life can be classified as a food sensitivity, uh, which is a real problem. But it is very different than a food intolerance or a food allergy. Mom deserves the the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I, I mean, you you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, yeah, I mean, when you look up food intolerance, it's it's this, you know, vague catch-all. It's used to, you know, explain all sorts of medical conditions from chronic fatigue syndrome to headaches to congestion to arthritis, any me- mental symptoms. So you have brain fog. Oh, you must have a food intolerance. You have to do an elimination diet. And, and elimination diets have gained popularity as a result of that as well. Um, 
But yeah, um, I want to take a really quick step back, um, you know, because you brought up a really important point when you were talking about food allergies, which are mediated by this particular type of antibody called immunoglobulin E. Um, And I think it's important because we've been talking a lot of COVID lately that, you know, we want to make the distinction that there are different types of antibodies that our B cells produce in response to interactions with other immune cells there. And I think um, it sets the stage really when we get into these food sensitivity tests because they use a different type of antibody called immunoglobulin G. Um, and, And this is important because when you... Pretty much any time you encounter any sort of molecule, whether that's a food product, whether that's something in your environment, whether that's a pathogen, your immune system is constantly being educated. And the way it does that is that specific immune cells in your body um, sample things, basically. They take up little bits of these different molecules out in the environment, and they test them out to see whether or not our immune system should respond to them and actually mount an immune response. And so a food allergy is a situation where something that should be benign to us, meaning it doesn't cause a reaction, leads to this inappropriate inflammatory process. Um, But even things that we don't actually have a physical reaction to, our body does recognize and create antibodies to because we've encountered it. So these are often markers of exposure to things and not necessarily, um, you know, a reaction and immune response to them per se. And so this sampling and this education um, leads to the production of IgG antibodies, which are different antibodies than what we see in allergic reactions. Um, And this really underlies the principle of these food sensitivity tests. Uh, So maybe it's a good time to actually really jump into the meat of what these tests are um, and how they're used to supposedly diagnose food intolerance. Um, Dr. Stugas, do you want to start us off? Yeah, if I could just offer a quick background with the IgE test, because that's the the classic food allergy test. So the history is the best test. And if you're concerned about food allergy, it really is what happens when you eat the food. If you're eating a food and you're not having these rapid onset reproducible reactions, you're not allergic to that food. It's plain and simple. But IgE... we can detect it through skin prick testing or through blood testing. Uh, we can place drops of liquid allergen on the back, on the skin, usually on the upper back of the forearm. We gently scratch through the top layer of the skin, and we introduce that allergen to the IgE. Uh, I'm sorry, to the mast cells, which are allergy cells throughout our body in the skin. If those mast cells have the IgE, then they will unlock and they will release a chemical called histamine, and histamine causes hives. So within 15 minutes, if there's histamine present, um, that would indicate that there. Um, is sensitization towards that allergen, and the size of the test indicates the likelihood of allergy being present. On blood testing, we simply measure levels of IgE in the blood. Now, neither skin prick nor blood testing is a yes-no answer. So these are not screening tests. There are tons of false positive results for a variety of reasons, and IgE tests are are rampantly overused and leads to misdiagnosis, unnecessary elimination. So that's what we know about IgE tests. And as you eloquently described, Andrea, with IgG tests, so IgE IgG just simply measures um, levels of this IgG antibody to different foods in the diet. 
And here's why it's problematic. One, it's not a screening test. So you can't just, you know, cast a net and just see what comes back and say, yes, no, positive, negative. Number two, all IgG denotes is tolerance or exposure. In fact, we know with people who have IgE allergies, severe life-threatening allergies to peanuts, as they get desensitized through things like oral immunotherapy, after about 12 months, their IgE starts to decline. And guess what goes up? IgG, because they're becoming more tolerant. Mm -hmm. So IgG says, yes, I'm protected. It's a good thing. It's a normal thing. So if you do a a large test of 200 different foods in your diet for IgG, all it's going to show you is foods that you've eaten. And the higher levels are more likely indicate foods that you've eaten on a regular basis or more recently. And that's all it shows. It doesn't diagnose any medical condition at all, period, hard stop. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, You know, and it's funny because when you talk about, um, you know, education of the immune system, you know, this starts, you know, in utero, but as a baby is born and and through development, everything they encounter, whether it's a food product, whether it's all the bacteria that live in and on our bodies, um, you'll have IgG antibodies to many of these different things because it's an indication that your body's been exposed to it, your immune system has sampled it, has taken a peek at it, decided that it's not harmful, it's it's not worthy of mounting an immune response, whether that's an allergic immune response in the context of a food allergen or whether it's an immune an infectious disease immune response associated with a pathogen. And therefore, you just have these levels of IgG antibodies that, that exist and circulate. These are longer-term circulating antibodies than some other types of antibodies. Um, and they're simply an indication that you know, you've consumed this food or you've been exposed to this, you know, um, you know, uh, commensal microorganism. And so, you know, one of the challenges with these food sensitivity tests is they're, they're solely based on IgG and they, they often advertise themselves to be able to screen for hundreds of different foods at a time. Um, And one of the biggest studies that's used in support of these intolerance tests is a paper by Atkinson et al. And and, um, I'm going to do a quick summary and maybe maybe Dr. Stukas, you can kind of uh, explain some of the shortcomings. So Mm -hmm. this was a study where they looked at patients with irritable bowel syndrome, um, and they all took an IgG antibody test. And there were 150 total participants that were screened. Using the results of the IgG antibody test, which looked for uh, you know several different types of food groups, I think it was up to 100 different food groups, um, one group of the IBS patients eliminated foods that they had high levels of IgG Um, in the test. And the other one took a sham diet where they eliminated the same number of foods, but foods that were not identified by the IgG test. And they looked at self-reported symptom scores across 12 weeks. So basically they, they checked in with these people weekly and said, how are you feeling? How are your IBS symptoms? So in these groups, they actually both reported improvements um, after their elimination diets, but they report that the test group had a 10% improvement compared to the sham group. 
Um, so obviously there are some obvious um, confounders here. And so the first thing is these are IBS patients. Um, so they have some, you know, inflammatory processes that are going on. They have digestive problems going on that in theory a, an elimination diet could be could be useful for. But if you actually look at the the foods that turned positive in the IgG test, these are foods like wheat, barley, corn, beans, and nuts. Um, and these these foods are often clinically eliminated in patients that have IBS. Um, and so um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on on this study, particularly as evidence for supporting these IgG tests, Dr. Stugas. No, it's great. Uh, you know, uh, it's not a great study. I'm sorry. It's great that you brought it up. Uh, so <laughs> a couple of things. One is um, even if let's say this was legitimate and this, oh, okay, definitive proof that yes, IgG tests can help. Still, the patients studied, as you mentioned, were those who had clinically diagnosed irritable bowel syndrome. Um, that doesn't apply to everybody else out there who would have dry skin, poor night's sleep, brain fog, acne, whatever else these tests are being marketed for. So unless you actually have clinically diagnosed irritable bowel syndrome, you wouldn't even apply to what this test showed. Uh, what this study showed. Uh, but number two, really what this demonstrates is, is our cognitive biases. And we see this across the board. So what happens if somebody pays $200 or more for a test that's not covered by insurance because it's unvalidated? And we have to get back to that in a second because that's really important. And then you get a long list of foods. So you've already spent the money. And you get this long list of foods because of whatever symptoms you have. And then you decide to eliminate those foods. You are invested. You already are subject to the placebo or nocebo effects or something called sunk cost fallacy. You're invested in this, so you want to get better because of what this test showed you. So when you have subjective symptoms that you're measuring over time, of course you're going to feel better. Uh, so we've seen this repeatedly with the, you know, the gluten-free fad. People stop eating gluten for a variety of reasons. They say, oh my gosh, yes, I feel better now. Well, what else did you do? What do you mean? I went gluten-free. Well, did you start exercising more, cut back on your alcohol intake, You know, practice your wellness and uh, start meditating and things like, oh, I did all those things, but that's separate. It's because of the gluten. So you know, all these anecdotal experiences, we, we tend to neglect all the other things that may be impacting our health and just focus on one specific thing when that's really the case. Um, so there's a lot of problems with, with taking that study and extrapolating to other things. But if I can go back to the validation point for one second. Yeah, this absolutely. is really crucial. So when we have diagnostic tests, they absolutely have to be validated to know what they mean. And IgG tests for food sensitivity or whatever have no validation whatsoever. And what I mean by that is you have to do these tests in large numbers of people that both have the condition and don't have the condition. Since we can't even diagnose food sensitivity because there is no diagnosis for it, we don't even know what people have that condition in the first place. But what percentage of the population is walking around with elevated IgG levels to whatever food and they don't have the condition? That's what is unknown. It's probably all of us. And the other thing is, as well, we don't have ranges of normal values. There is no known normal range of what IgG levels are based upon age and, and other factors that affect our health. We have normal ranges for every other, simple, every other single diagnostic test that we do. So we don't know what an abnormal value is. And when you look at these results when they get reported to you, none of them come back negative. They come back with extremely high, high, moderate, or you know whatever. Um, and there's also no units of measurement included in most of these as well. So it's just, there's so many problems with this that you know, we need to dive into here. But I, I really want to emphasize that these are not validated in any way, shape, or form. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. That's a great point. Um, And actually, one of the issues, aside from the fact that they're not validated, and there actually was a study done in PLOS One that looked at a population-wide level study. So it was over 21,000 individuals. Um, It was in China. And they looked at, um, you know, healthy and symptomatic. So people that were reporting digestive issues, you know, symptoms that are commonly associated with, you know, the the catch-all food intolerance and people that had no symptoms. Symptoms. And of course, as as you could predict, they found that IgG levels were elevated in both populations. There were no mm-hmm. difference between food-specific IgGs. They were variable with certain food groups and not certain food groups. They were elevated in both populations. And so again, this is reflecting that it's really simply... IgG levels are representing tolerance of foods, of exposure to foods, and and have no bearing on sensitivity to that food in question. Um, But you also bring up a great point about the testing themselves. So because, again, there's no gold standard, there's no no normalization, there's no baseline value, and there's going to be a lot of socioeconomic and sociodemographic variables, right? There's going to be some Mm -hmm. populations that don't eat certain foods, so maybe they don't have IgG, you know, high high IgG for that particular food. And there's going to be other populations that, you know, culturally that's a that's a heavy dietary component. So maybe they do have high IgG levels. But aside from that, um, these tests are developed by the labs that sell them. So there's no standardization test by test or brand by brand. These labs develop their own in-house techniques. They're not FDA approved. They're not FDA reviewed. Um, many of them actually have poor reproducibility, which means if you mm-hmm. take your blood sample and you run it twice, you're going to get completely different results, which we know is the polar opposite of what we do in research. And so, you know, aside from the fact that they're not going to be very informative for you on a personal level, you can't even necessarily interpret the results in a meaningful way. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it, it's going back to your point as well, because there are people listening right now, they're, they're going to say, you, you, you're all full of it. Because listen, <laughs> I, I took these tests and I stopped eating certain foods and I felt better. And yeah. you know what? Yeah, there are people out there that you are absolutely going to feel better. Um, but as you mentioned, Many of us will feel better if we stopped eating processed foods uh, and, you know, a lot of, you know, the different foods that may cause symptoms. You know, if I eat a lot of beans, I'm going to fart a lot later that day and the next day. (laughs) That doesn't mean I'm allergic to beans or intolerant to beans or sensitive beans. That means that I ate food with a high fiber content, and that's my normal gut bacteria digesting this and releasing their gases. That's not a medical diagnosis. It's a byproduct of the foods that we eat. Um, So that's another thing that we need to really help educate people about of just 
you know, overall diet um, mm-hmm. can impact uh, how often we go to the bathroom and how often we have gas and how we how we feel overall. But there are other factors as well. So we need to really be thoughtful. And if you if you use these tests and then you do eliminate some foods and you feel better, it doesn't mean because the test said that that's the food you had to eliminate. It may just mean that you it, it's coincidence, and that's more yeah. often the case than not. So yeah, can I absolutely. can I break up the immunology fest just for one second? <laughs> Oh, all right. <laughs> well, I just want to ask a, a practical question again as a mother. So I, I have two kids. Um, my son, anytime he has dairy, he has some GI upset. We know, you know, clear out the bathroom. Dylan's gonna, you know, <laughs> pay a visit. And then my daughter recently, she had a fruit cup that had mango in it and she developed some, um, you know, I don't know if it was a rash or some hives on her face. So I mentioned this to to a friend of mine who the first thing out of her mouth was, of course, to blame me because I had to have C-sections with both children. Um, anyway, mm. that's a whole other story, but I had an infection <laughs> and I had to have an emergency C-section. And okay, so A, that was, it's my fault because I had a, I had a C-section. And then B, she said she actually recommended that I run out and get one of these tests. So I didn't um, because I, I knew enough um, to know that, you know, there, there are some issues with these tests. But what do you recommend to parents who have kids who are, you know, we, we suspect maybe there's something going on. I don't know if it's a food sensitivity or an intolerance or something. What should we do? What, what, what would we do? I recommend avoiding self-diagnosis and don't listen to people on Facebook and social media and and neighbors and friends. No, really, self-diagnosis of food allergy is incorrect, um, you know, 90% of the time. Um, I I undiagnose food allergy in over 60% of new patient consultations. So these are people who come out of their way. They get referred to come see me as a food allergy expert. They um, take time off work, bring their kids in, and they're convinced they have a food allergy. And I remove that label over 60% of the time. I'm just on the first meeting them. But what I offer them is I offer them explanations as to, yes, these symptoms are occurring and it may be occurring due to the food, but it's not because they're allergic or intolerant or sensitive. So we know that there's a large number of children out there that get nonspecific irritant dermatitis or rashes on their face from a variety of foods. There are 200 plus foods that can do this, tomato-based foods, strawberries, any type of sauces or jams, cinnamon, bananas, mangoes. This isn't allergic. It causes some redness and irritation, but kids are otherwise fine. Uh, and it often gets better as kids get older. It's more prevalent in kids with eczema and sensitive skin. We know that anybody, if you eat a large amount of dairy, especially cheese, you're going to have a hard time going to the bathroom. And you're going to be more constipated. Or it's possible maybe, you know, just with your son, maybe it is some lactose intolerance and, you, and um, that may be what's going on there if he's having these symptoms that are reproducible. So we can, we can devise ways to figure this out. So I, I really just can't emphasize enough, talk to your child's pediatrician, uh, consider a referral to a board-certified allergist, um, and you know get, the, get to the root of the matter, because we can alleviate concern, we can offer an explanation, and we can avoid unnecessary uh, food avoidance. Wait a second, Dr. Stukas. These people should go see an expert in the field? That's shocking. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Isn't it? I mean, I, it's it's. We live in very interesting times, and I think uh, the the COVID nineteen pandemic has highlighted a lot of what's kind of wrong in in regards to how we value true experts. Mm-hmm. But no, I mean, we're 
we're not out here as, as physicians and, and uh, medical experts to deceive people. We're here to help, mm-hmm. especially yeah. in the pediatric field. Um, but, you know, that's very different than what you may read online. Can, can yeah. I just selfishly, while, while I have you here, <laughs> um, just follow up on that, the, uh, the example I just gave. You know, I did a quick search and it does seem, I, I don't know, I, I have not done a deep dive. I haven't really looked into the quality of the evidence, but it did look like there might be some sort of a correlation between um, uh, babies born via a C-section and now I'm scared to use, I don't know, allergies, sensitivities. I'm not quite sure which term to use. Sensitivity is not a thing. Intolerance would be. So intolerance would be when when you're not able to process something in your gastrointestinal tract. So the example that is often used is lactose intolerance because I think it's 35% of, of, of um, humans start to reduce how much of the enzyme, it's called lactase, that they need to actually digest that dairy, sugar, lactose. And so that is a legitimate thing that occurs. Um, and then allergy would be this immune system mediated, you know, sensitivity to foods, but the, but the food sensitivity is kind of that vague, you know, no medical diagnosis term. But, but yeah. is, no. is there any truth to that? That, you know, is there any relationship between a baby's born via C-section and these issues? Or I'm just so curious because yeah, I don't know. I think the, the people, again, these are non-experts uh, that I saw. Uh, on, uh, you know, commenting yeah. on social media, of course, we're saying that it's something to do with not being exposed to, I don't know, certain, uh, what, what's the term, microbiota, what do you always say, Andrea, in the mm-hmm. vaginal canal? Oh, in, the, in the vaginal yeah. canal. Is that a thing, really? Uh, so the yes and no. Um, but first, anybody out there, if anybody has ever told you that you're a bad parent, for any reason, don't talk just, to them anymore. Don't. It, that's a reflection on them. Who says that to somebody uh-huh. else? I've had I've had so many mothers in my office in tears because their own pediatrician or somebody that they trust told them that they caused their child's food allergy because of what they ate when they were pregnant or breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. That is not the case at all. That is the opposite of the case. In fact, you couldn't cause allergies to develop even if you wanted to. Not that you'd want to. So we need to get, move away from the guilt because if you have to have a C-section for whatever reason. Um, you know, at the moment, we're not going to make that decision saying, oh, I don't know. I, I shouldn't do this because I don't want my child to have allergies. Right. It is way more complicated than that. But yes, there, there are studies that have shown associations, which is very different than causation, associations of children born by cesarean section, uh, as well as children who are exposed to frequent antibiotics early in life or even antacid use, that um, they, are, uh, they have associations of higher rates of allergies. And the theory is that they have altered uh, microbiomes inside their gut. And the microbiome is essentially, you know, we have trillions of bacteria that live on us and inside us, and it's a symbiotic relationship. And we know that the microbiota of children with allergic conditions or other inflammatory chronic conditions differs from those who don't have those conditions. But we are nowhere near knowing, one, how to accurately measure that, or two, what to really do about it. Uh, But that doesn't stop people from peddling all of their snake oil and saying you should do probiotics prebiotics and all this other stuff. So we are just in the infancy stages. There is, there's a signal there, but what we do about it next, I don't know. There's really cool research and it's very promising, uh, but that's very different than saying you need to do this. Yeah. And, and the microbiota is, is different in all sorts of situations, right? We know that, that 
animals and humans that are lean have different microbiome profiles in their gut that than than those who are obese we know that some of that can be um, recapitulated if they do fecal transplants of the microbiota mm-hmm. but but again you can't you can't use it to like customize your existence, your diet, whatever. Um, But it's interesting because when we talk about allergies and the emergence of allergies, especially in developed countries, um, there's there's an inverse relationship between things like parasitic infections, helminths, so worms, um, and the the prevalence of allergies, food allergies. And, um, you know, at least immunologically, it seems to be they I want to simplify, but they almost compete with each other. It's the same sort of arm of immune response, the mast cells and IgE and that sort of branch of of immune response. And so in countries that have high rates of parasitic infections in children, um, it's it's very – uncommon to see food allergies and the converse seems to be true in more developed countries. No, absolutely. IgE was initially developed by our by humans to fight off parasitic infections. So as humans move towards cleaner environments, especially more urban environments, um, we're still making IgE, but it got bored. Uh, yeah. And it said, I don't, I don't have to fight off parasitic infections, so I'm going to react to very benign things in the environment like ragweed pollen or peanut or things like that. And the hygiene hypothesis has been shown across continents across the world where uh, infants who grow up in uh, environments where they're exposed to a bunch of farm animals and endotoxins and bacteria and um, and more specifically the poop from farm animals, mm-hmm. um, they have much less likely risk to develop allergies of any kind. We see yeah. this in the Amish population, and we've moved to this really hyper-sterile environment where we're cleaning everything all the time, and that's actually not beneficial for our, ch- our infant's immune system. Somewhere along the line, uh, people you know seem to make it think that infants were you know uh, these really sensitive little uh, creatures that uh, you know shouldn't be exposed to any germs at all. When in fact the opposite is true, their immune systems are robust. And and that's why they can handle multiple childhood immunizations all at once. Right. And that's why they can handle all of the different germs. And their immune systems want to practice and go to the gym and get stronger. And if we protect them from that, then that's when they are at risk to kind of go wonky and develop allergies and things along those lines. Now, Dr. Sugis, didn't they recently readjust the guidance for exposing children to commonly known allergens like peanuts? I I, I seem to recall that you know, maybe a decade or so ago, they they said to wait until a child was a little bit older. And now they're saying, no, you actually can expose them younger for this exact reason. Yeah. And this is a a huge uh, disservice that we've done as pediatricians and allergists because we've scared the hell out of parents everywhere from just simply feeding their babies. Uh, Mm -hmm. It has become so medicalized. And this started years ago. It was based on expert opinion where, you know, I I learned this early in my training as well, 20 years ago of um, no milk and no milk or eggs till one, um, you know, no seafood or nuts until three. If you're pregnant or breastfeeding, don't eat any of these things because you're going to cause food allergy. So we thought avoidance would prevent food allergy. Well, we have robust evidence that shows the opposite. Uh, just like I mentioned before, we want the immune system to practice. The earlier we expose infants to these allergenic foods, ideally four to six months of age, once they start eating other solid foods in age-appropriate forms, and more specifically, keep them in the diet. So ongoing exposure is the best way to promote tolerance. Uh, so those are the recommendations now. Let the babies eat. Uh, there's parents that you know drive to the parking lot of emergency rooms before they feed peanut butter to their child for the first time, thinking they're mm. going to die if they, you know, if they eat peanut. And 
it's it, we have a lot to undo in regards to all the fear that we've caused even for you know it's not 100 percent effective the early introduction but it's the best path that we have to try to reverse this epidemic of food allergies that, that jessica described early on um, but even when babies have initial allergic reactions i don't get patients because they die the first time they eat a food i get patients because they get some hives and they may throw up once um, that's the that's the most common type of reaction, or, or parents will notice. Oh boy, something's not right when I feed them this. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of education that we need to do, and we want to promote letting babies eat and have fun with it. Totally agree. So let's kind of take it back to the the food sensitivity testing because I think we've talked a little bit about diet restriction in the context of allergies, um, but you see all these people who are taking these food sensitivity tests and they're saying, oh, I have IgG levels against you know wheat and rice and beans and et cetera. And so, you know, aside from the fact that there's no science behind eliminating those foods, there are ne- other potential negative consequences um, from these types of diet restrictions. And, and in children and and adults alike. You know, we have these unnecessary dietary restrictions. This can lead to, as you mentioned, panic, anxiety about, Mm -hmm. you know, structuring their diets. It can also lead to nutrient deficiencies if they're eliminating, you know, large swaths of food groups. And and it can also promote disordered eating, which we know Mm -hmm. is a huge challenge as well. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this kind of unnecessary elimination diet. Yeah, this is not a benign thing. Uh, not, not to mention the cost. I mean, these are hundreds of dollars. And sometimes <laughs> and, people even and, say, like, insurance yeah. doesn't cover it because there are no data to support the use of them. Right, right. Um, another big thing to consider, too, is if you have a legitimate underlying medical condition, um, you can go undiagnosed for prolonged periods of time while you pursue these unvalidated tests and elimination yeah. diets. So you might be missing legitimate inflammatory bowel disease or, or other issues, celiac disease or things like that. So that's an important thing to consider as well. Um, orthorexia is the term for this sort of disordered uh, relationship with eating. And really, that is, uh, I, I'm seeing this more and more. It's a fixation on thinking through your entire day, I can't go out with my friends to this restaurant because I have to avoid these 25 different foods. And I know that there's no way they can prepare my food uh, because it may touch you know, something else. So the other thing I see too is when you have legitimate IgE-mediated food allergies, you absolutely have to take precautions, but the, you can manage them very well by learning how to avoid, by reading labels, by communicating with food handlers and understanding the risk. At the, you know, the risk is involved with ingestion. That's what's uh, associated with more severe allergic reactions. But you can also go deep down the rabbit hole and start thinking about associations of this food is related to that food and that food is related to this food. Mm-hmm. And I see that crossover when people do these IgG tests as they start thinking that they're at risk to have some severe reaction and they have to eliminate whole classes of foods based upon a poor understanding of food allergy in, in the first place versus sensitivity and just risk of symptoms and reactions. So it is just so problematic from top to bottom and, and these tests are not helpful in any way. Well, I think we've covered a lot. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna do my big takeaway. I'm gonna hand it over to you, Dr. Stugas and Jess, uh, before we wrap up. But, but ultimately, the big takeaway is true food allergies, which are IgE-mediated allergic reactions by our immune system, and true food intolerances, which are digestive-related. Um, errors in processing food ultimately are legitimate medical conditions. However, these IgG-based food sensitivity tests have no data behind them, and therefore it is not recommended by professionals in the field. They're not going to enable you to truly identify foods that you should avoid. Um, This is 
as I mentioned, also why insurance companies will not cover the cost of these tests. And so ultimately, if you are legitimately concerned that you have a true food allergy or a true food intolerance, you should see your clinical professionals, pediatricians, general practitioners, allergists and immunologists. Do not self-diagnose. Do not listen to people on Facebook. Um, and you know, take all this information you see online with a grain of salt, particularly when these are companies that are marketing a product that they're profiting off of. And on, on that note, while we've been chatting, I've been trying to Google to uh, to find out just how big this market is. And I, I don't want to give an exact number because I'm seeing lots of different estimates, but that range from f- uh, $500 million to over $1 billion uh, for these tests that, as Andrea just said, are not evidence-based, uh, therefore not covered by insurance. This is an industry. As with so many of the things that we've talked about on this podcast that do not have signs to support them. People are profiting um, off of misinformation and, you know, preying off of, of people's fears. So this is definitely an industry. And I, I'm just so grateful um, to have had <laughs> to have learned so much from from both of you guys on this episode. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Stukas, is there anything that you want to, you know, um, end with to, to tell our listeners uh, about this topic? No, I, I think this has been a great conversation. And thank you so much for having me. Um, it, you know, there's a lot that goes into this, but the psychology behind it is really important as well, because I think people um, are confused about who to trust. Social media has created this false equivalence where uh, anybody out there can have a voice, and it, it makes it seem like all opinions are equal when they're not. Uh, you know, experts are, are experts for a reason, and that's not to discount the experiences of others, but just be wary of anecdotal reports. Um, we have no idea, you know, if and what other people are, are relating about their own experience is true, or whether that actually, you know, it relates to our own experience in any way, shape, or form. And also be wary of other professionals. There's a lot of alternative uh, practitioners out there that have different types of titles and certifications or degrees or things like that. And that's where a lot of this food sensitivity testing is originating from. I know there's a lot of chiropractors out there that recommend it because they, they feel that they are qualified to diagnose food sensitivity, but they're not. Um, so just be wary of that because it can be very confusing. So going back to what Andrea said, please you know, talk to your own physician. Uh, I hope you have a trusted relationship with them. If you don't find another one because I think that's really important. And then board certified allergists are ready to help. I love having these conversations with families every day in the office. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Sugas, for joining us. It's really, it's been a blast. It's been, I hopefully, illuminating for our listeners. Um, And to your point about chiropractors, we did tackle them a couple of episodes ago. And so, Again, you know, be wary of where you're getting that information from. Um, To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also go to our website at www.unbiasedscipod.com where you can see all of our show notes. You can actually listen to episodes direct on the website. And you can see our searchable source database, which has every Instagram infographic we've ever posted linked to all the references we've used for each of them. Um, be sure to follow Dr. Stukas at AllergyKidsDoc on Twitter and Instagram as well. He is constantly putting out debunks and helpful information for parents, kids, families, etc. Since our social media posting on this topic got so much attention, our next podcast episode is going to be covering the topic of homeopathy, what it is, what it's not, and maybe a teaser about 
about some other types of natural remedies since there seemed to be a little bit of discussion about that. We will continue to provide updates on COVID-19 on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah. Oh, I am a scientist.